We're in the genre of the epistles once again. So here we are. We started this survey of the Bible in January over a year ago. We're getting close to the end. This epistle, the only one written by James, we've been through 14 epistles so far, one by an unknown author, that was the book of Hebrews, 13 by the Apostle Paul. We're going to talk a lot about Paul today, by the way, as we compare and contrast what James says. We've got six more epistles after today. We're going to lump a couple of these together, and then we'll move into our last genre, prophetic apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, which J.D. is going to finish us off with. I just have to say... uh, This has been a tough one to prepare for. I thought, oh, James, five chapters, this will be easy. No. Um, Of all of the books of the New Testament, maybe, maybe aside from the book of Revelation, this one, James, is possibly the most controversial and perhaps the most misunderstood. Um, On one hand, um, There are a lot of quotes from James that Christians just use in everyday conversation. You might hear some of the verses, whether they know it or not. So it's a very well-quoted book, but a lot of Christians just simply don't know what to do with the book of James. Over the centuries, um, uh, people have just been left scratching their heads by some things that James talks about. Like, uh, uh, does James dislike rich people? Are we supposed to dislike rich people? What is this anointing of oil for the sick? What's the prayer of faith? Does James teach that if we just have enough faith that God will always heal? These are some questions that are just, you know, been misunderstood for a long time. Unfortunately, since this is only a survey and I've got roughly 30 minutes today to give an overview, we don't have time to answer all those questions. Sorry. But there are a couple of bigger questions, a couple of really big issues that really really require our attention and clarification. For example, why doesn't James talk much about Jesus? Why doesn't he talk about the cross very much? And secondly, does he really understand the gospel the way the rest of the authors of the New Testament and our Lord Jesus Christ understood the gospel? Does James teach a works-based salvation? Or does he contradict what everybody else says? These are the key issues we'll be talking about today, and my hope is, well, our, our goal always is in these surveys, it'll encourage you, what your appetite to read it for yourself and test it like the Bereans, see that these things be true, what we talk about. But I want you to look at James and not misinterpret it like so many others have over the years. So here I am, feeling inadequate to, to teach through this controversial book, and it brings to mind a verse, it's one of my favorite verses from James. And this is one that I've contemplated often, and it struck me in the last three weeks. um, This is an important verse that I wanted to share with you. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And I take that very seriously. So before we come to this one book of the Bible, of the 66, that God inspired James to write, I'm going to need uh, help and prayer, and I think we all will. So let's go to the Lord really quickly. Father God, um, I feel inadequate, Lord, to share your word, but your word is powerful. Use your word. Use me uh, to show us what you inspired James to write. Um, Anything that I misinterpret or share that's wrong, strike it from our memory. Anything that's true, that's worthy, that glorifies you in your son, we ask that you would imprint that deeply, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, open up to James chapter 1. We're going to start with our 
key verse, which is actually in 122, James 122. Try to put some of these up here on the, on the slides today. James 122, our key verse says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The primary message James is stressing in this epistle, I'll go ahead and give it to you right up front, is that a Christian's faith in the gospel should work itself out in a life of obedience. If what we just heard in James is that believers shouldn't just hear the word and believe it, but they should also do what it says. A novel idea, isn't it? I'm not sure why this is so controversial. Let's read another key passage. Move to James chapter 2, if you will. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 26. I put it on the slide up here. Very busy slide, but if you have it, we'll read through this. This this will be the text. This will be our launching point today. And this text, this passage, will be the focus of the majority of our discussion today. So uh, read along with me. Hear the word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe That God is one you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, now, if you were paying attention there, and you believe in the doctrine of justification through faith alone, your ears may have really perked up at verse 24 here. Because James just said, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. What in the world? What? What? Before we go any further, if there's anybody here who's not a member, um, (laughs) or for those listening online later to this recording, I want to be perfectly clear and state up front Um, We don't have time to defend the doctrine of justification through faith alone. But it is clearly what we see in Scripture. Let me just state that up front so you don't hear what I'm not saying. We affirm here at Redemption Hill what Paul wrote in Romans 3.28. Let me me just go through a couple of these so we know where we're coming from. A person, Paul says, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He also says in Romans 4, verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly, not us. We also affirm what Romans 4 and Galatians 3 say, which is that both Abraham and David were justified by faith and not works. 
By the way, let me throw in another important one here, what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We all know this one. We should. That salvation is by grace and through faith. Works, in Paul's mind here, are excluded as a basis of salvation. Why is that? So that what? So that no one can boast, right? That's false religion. That's Judaism, Roman Catholicism, um, Islam, that we can save ourselves by doing something. That is not Christianity. Salvation by grace through faith highlights the amazing and comforting truth that salvation is from the Lord alone. Can I get an amen on that from the congregation? Okay, thank you. So we're all on board with that. But after reading what we just read from James, we have to ask this question. Is James contradicting what Paul said? Don't hang in the air for a minute. Before we get to that, let's talk about our author. Let's do a little background. We always like to talk about who wrote it, when, and to whom. And actually, these three things will give us a little bit of insight, hopefully, on what James is saying here. It is commonly and correctly believed that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this epistle. We say half-brother because they both shared the same earthly mother, Mary. But James had an earthly father, Joseph, while Jesus had a heavenly father, God, the creator God of the Bible. Interestingly, even though they both were brought up in the same house, as half-brothers, James, and from what we can tell in Scripture, the rest of his siblings were skeptics. They didn't believe that their brother was the Messiah prophesied in Scripture. In fact, what we, what we understand from Scripture is that it wasn't until after James saw Jesus as the Messiah after he was resurrected that he kind of had the same response uh, doubting Thomas did, my Lord, my God. And we know from, um, I think he was first mentioned in, um, what is it, Galatians 2.9, He's first mentioned as a pillar of the church. Right here, he's in the early phases of Christianity. James, who used to be a skeptic, became a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He was one of the leading teaching elders, if not the leading, I don't know for sure. But he went to his death in servitude to Christ, died as a martyr. That's James, the author of this book. He wrote this, we think, as early as A.D. 45, which makes this the first and oldest book of the New Testament, even predating the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's kind of important. We'll talk about that in a minute. But who is he writing this to? Right in um, the opening, if you look back in chapter 1, the opening verses in his greeting, James tells us who this epistle is written to. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What the heck? The 12 tribes of the dispersion. What is that? Let me tell you something. It's a fascinating subject. But I got carried away, and there's a whole other lesson I could give on just that. It's fascinating. We don't have time for it. We all know who the 12 tribes are, the descendants of Jacob or Israel. Um, Suffice it to say, for the purpose of our discussion, this is important, James is writing to believers in Christ. We'll parse that out a little bit more. Believers in Christ. Some of them are Jews. Some of them are not. Some are Gentiles. But he's writing to believers. Now, let's go back to the passages we just read where James addresses faith and works. Like I said, this book has been the subject of quite a bit of controversy throughout the centuries. Uh, Critics have pitted James against Paul, and we still see that going on. I'll quote a guy, uh, a modern Christian, who still kind of does that, um, saying that James and Paul are kind of in disagreement about the relationship between faith and works and salvation. This is our key theme here. And I'll, I'll repeat the question I asked just a minute ago. Was James completely contradicting what Paul and the other authors of the New Testament wrote? 
It's a key question, and like I said, this is something this epistle is distinctly known for, and it's been misinterpreted, so we're going to camp there today. And if it feels like at some point that I've been beating a dead horse, that's because I want you to see, like I've got on the cartoon, James does not teach a works-based salvation. Okay, just, just so you know. Now, why do I feel it necessary to do this? Because not every theologian over the years, you have to know, some of you already know this, didn't even think that this book should be included in the canon of Scripture. They say James doesn't belong because it teaches a works-based salvation. That's the charge. Uh, Martin Luther, whom I love, he's a saved Christian. I can't hold a candle to him as a biblical scholar. But Martin Luther had a more serious charge against this book. He said, look, any book that belongs in the Bible should first and foremost, you should find Jesus in every single passage. And this book doesn't meet that standard. And so James... Or, sorry, Martin Luther disliked this book so much, he called this epistle a letter of straw. We're going to examine to see whether these things are true. You might be sitting there thinking to yourselves, what do I care what a bunch of old dead guys think about this book? And that's a valid question, but let me explain something, why I'm going to beat this dead horse today. Because we have to understand, there are no contradictions in the Bible People will suggest that. Scholarly people with PhDs, I call them piled higher and deeper, will tell you that that's what PhD stands for, I'm convinced sometimes, that, that there are contradictions that we can't trust. That is not true. So that's why we need to camp here today. And we need to, secondly, we need to correctly interpret Scripture so that we don't come away with misunderstandings. That's important to all of us. So let's look through the eyes of the author. Let's consider a few ways that we do see Jesus in this book and why we can say confidently this does belong in the canon of Scripture and does not disagree with the rest of Scripture. If you'll look back in James chapter 1, verse 1. Look there with me quickly. This is one place out of five chapters where James does mention Jesus. The only other time he does it, it's true, he only mentions him twice. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Two places out of, I think it's 180 verses, he mentions Jesus. But he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, he labels himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the brother of Jesus who grew up in the same house with him. He's not saying, James, uh, the brother of Christ. Uh, he's not introducing himself that way. He really could have uh, boosted his credibility, I think, in doing that. But he doesn't do that. He calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Again, he refers to Jesus as our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Again, he's not identifying himself as the brother of the Messiah. He's saying he's a servant of the Messiah. And in Greek, the original Greek, he would have used the word doulos, which actually means slave. So servant actually might be considered a kind of a weak interpretation. Um, uh, doulos in Greek, if we use the word that James was communicating here, means someone who belongs to another or a bondservant without any ownership rights of their own. That's what he's talking about. And when people in the New Testament times, believers, used this word doulos, it was used with the highest dignity, namely of someone who willingly lives under Christ's authority and as his devoted follower. So this is how our author, James, is introducing himself, basically as a slave owned by Christ. Let this be insightful to what he's going to share later. If you look also, again, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, where he, he introduces himself with his audience, he's identifying his audience as what? What does he call them? Say it again. 
brothers, very important. He's not identifying as a brother with Christ, but a servant with the believers whom he's addressing. He's saying, we are brothers. He's saying, our identity is in Christ. That's who we are. Anyone who's in Christ by faith are brothers in the faith. So again, this tells us a lot about where James is coming from. His purpose isn't to share the gospel. We've talked a lot about all these books, including the gospels. The Gospels give a different perspective on the Gospel, on the same thing, but from a different perspective, perhaps with different audiences. God doesn't unnecessarily repeat the same exact thing. With James, he's not giving a, an extensive uh, um, theological presentation of the Gospel like Paul did in Romans. That's not his purpose. Instead, he's writing to people who already understand the Gospel. That's an assumption. He's going off of the indicative. The indicative means here's the truth, What's the imperative? He gives a lot of imperatives. This is the most imperative, dense book of the Bible. Meaning, like what Paul did, here's the truth, here's how we should live in it. That's what he's doing here. Okay? His goal, again, is to help believers live a life that reflects that of someone who follows Christ. Okay, so how else can we answer this charge that the critics have brought that um, James believes something different than Christ and the other apostles taught, or that he's ignoring Christ altogether? There's another line of evidence that I found fascinating. When I was researching this, I'd actually never heard this, but people said, man, look at the, the Sermon on the Mount. James is like lockstep with Jesus' teaching. So I said, okay, I've never heard that before, but man, I'll tell you what. I would encourage you, if you really want to research this question, go back, read Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, beginning with the Beatitudes. Who gave the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus, our Lord Jesus. Man, if you do that, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, then read James, all five chapters. Uh, you might have the same reaction I did. Oh, oh, I see what they're talking about. There's a lot of distinct parallels that really reflect the teaching of Jesus in content and in style. In fact, James alludes to or almost seems to directly quote the teachings of Jesus often from the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's a pretty good evidence that he's not ignoring Jesus, like Martin Luther and others have said. We have to remember also at the time I said that this was the first um, epistle written even before the Gospels. At this time, um, there were some confused believers who didn't really understand the Gospel. Okay? Some of them were, um, well, pretty much in the beginning, they were all Jews, right? Some were from the camp of the Pharisees. My gosh, there were Pharisees that were believers? Yes. They recognized, some of them, not all, that Jesus was the Messiah. But they couldn't let go of the law. And this idea that, man, you really need to be circumcised, you Gentiles. You've got to be circumcised or you're not in the kingdom of God. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't be called uh, sons of God unless you have circumcision. Okay, It's what we call, that, that's a works-based salvation right there. Right? That's legalism. So they were wrongly promoting this. And James, it might surprise some people to know, James was adamantly opposed, vehemently opposed, outspoken against legalism, believe it or not. Um, if we look in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, um, there was something called the First Council of Jerusalem that had to deal with this legalism that was being promoted. And James publicly stood up in front of all the other apostles. This is not an actual photo, by the way. And he said in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying you can't put this yoke on them that we can't even bear, that if, if we're just perfectly adherent to the law, that we can be saved. He says, no, 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 no. He was in complete agreement with Peter, who was there, and the rest of the apostles who were there, that there could be no works-based basis 
for salvation. Again, it might surprise some people to hear that, but I think it's good to know. But at the time that this legalism was being promoted, like I said, this is before the Gospels, there were other people who also misinterpreted the Gospel in the opposite way. And i got to tell you, I know people like that today, um, as, you des- as we describe this. But, you know, a lot of people, even Christians, we hear Paul say um, that in, under the new covenant in Christ, you're no longer under law, but grace. Right, And a lot of people back then, obviously now, still misinterpret this new covenant in Christ to mean that the believer is completely free from the commands given in Scripture known as the Ten Commandments, or as we also call them, the moral law. This was me for the majority of my Christian life. Right? It's a, there's another word for this heresy. It's, called, it's a really big word. It's called antinomianism, which is just a fancy big word for saying it's an un- unbiblical practice of living without regard, to the righteousness of God, using God's grace as a license to sin and trusting grace to cleanse us of sin. So the thinking goes, you know, in other words, since grace is infinite and we're saved by grace, then we can sin all we want and still be saved. But when James says, this is one of my favorite verses in chapter 2, you believe in God, congratulations, so do the demons. It brings to mind, you know, this word believe. Man, this is, I've thought about this a lot. It believes, when we talk about the word believe, it means different things to different people. For some, it means simply to understand. You can have all the theological understanding in the world. Um, you can have knowledge or give what we call intellectual assent to the facts. But the type of saving belief that James is talking about here, in this passage that we read, um, it's more of a verb than a noun. So it's a heart issue versus a, an intellectual issue. Now, I came across an article, I don't often read the Gospel Coalition, but there was some guy named Thomas Schreiner who said that Paul, he he was trying to be helpful. He said, Paul, if we look at the works of Paul, um, he was really combating this legalism, whereas James, James was fighting antinomianism. Okay? And I thought, well, that seems to be helpful at first glance, but I have to respectfully disagree with this guy. Um, I think this is an oversimplification. We've already established, I hope I have, that, that James was equally committed against legalism. Can we agree with that? He spoke out against it, Acts fifteen nineteen. But I want to say here that James wasn't the only one concerned with antinomianism. I'll tell you why. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's Paul, who also said in Romans 6.14 that over, even though as Christians we're not under the law, we're still commanded to obey the law. Hmm, interesting. Titus 3.8, Paul once again says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's, one more person. Let's go to the Apostle John in Revelation fourteen twelve. He says that the ones who exemplify what we call um, the endurance of the saints, those that are persevering in the faith, living the life of a Christian, are, quote, this is John, those who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. This is the life that James is talking about, not only having faith in Jesus, but keeping God's laws. 
And again, maybe it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse here. <laughs> Stephen, thank you. He's nodding his head, no. There's, there's a lot more we could say, much more. In fact, I told JD, man, I've got like two more hours on this. So many more things that we try to keep it under 30 minutes. We can't go through all of it. Again, going back to my dead horse I'm beating, James does not teach a works-based salvation. And I hope, again, that as you read through James, uh, that you will see for yourself, James does rightly belong in the canon of Scripture. This does not disagree with the teaching of the other apostles, and it is valuable for the life of a Christian. So, I have to leave that now. That's the main theme, though. That's the thing we wanted to cover. Um, There are many other different themes in James and that's part of the, the rest of the two hours that I could go through. Some of them got me really excited. These are, these are some of the ten things that James emphasized. And when you look at all of them, um, they might seem to be really disconnected. You know, um, Perseverance when faith is tested, wisdom, economic impartiality, the prayer of faith, taming of the tongue, friendship. The, you know, all these things seem to be disconnected, like he's coming from a lot of different places. But really, there's one thing that ties them all together, and that's the theme of faith and works. It's all tied to James's desire to take the teaching of Jesus and to apply it to the Christian life. Doesn't that sound like what Paul did? We only have time to touch on one of these, but I do want to address one of the passages that has raised questions over the years and left Christians scratching their heads. That's economic impartiality, which is found. Um, we have James one. I'm sorry, James two one through twelve, and then he talks specifically about the rich. He's really addressing believers on this topic of, of wealth in James 2. And then in James 5, he's really pointedly talking about the rich specifically to them. These passages, we don't have the time to read it, but they've left the impression, like I mentioned earlier, that some people come away saying, we're not supposed to like the rich. James really didn't like the rich. So um, this is a timely question. I told J.D. I think this is one that's really good to address because there's something percolating in the culture um, called critical theory, and you don't need to know what that is, but I guarantee you we've talked with Tim, who goes to our public schools. Any kid these days will understand some of these things. If you go to the universities, even our seminaries, this is entering big evangelicalism, this critical theory that you're supposed to have um, to, work, to not like the rich people. Does James dislike the rich? The answer is no, in a short answer. He doesn't hate rich people. But in chapter 2, what he's saying here, just let me kind of get this out, is that believers shouldn't show favoritism towards people who are wealthy, who who have status. If we do that, we judge the poor believer as not worthy of equal consideration. He he says we should meet the practical needs of the poor, like the passage we walked through. If you just say, oh, I'll pray for you, and we don't meet their physical needs, what kind of faith is that? On the other hand, he says the rich really need to focus on humility, realizing that their wealth is a gift from God, but it's temporary, it's not eternal. Keep that in perspective. He's not saying, let me, let me just say this really clearly, those with wealth are more sinful than the poor, and he's not condemning the rich necessarily as evil, nor, I think this is important to point out, he's not elevating the poor, some people have thought this, to a position of sainthood, like they're sinless, Okay. What is that verse? All have sinned. All, I think that word means all, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's uh, Rich, poor, male, female, black, white, Jew, Gentile, all have sinned. We have to remember God granted Job and David and many other people in the New Testament wealth and prosperity. 
And they were found righteous by grace through faith, just like any other believer. But if you look in chapter 5, James pointed his most um, strongest words at the evil rich. And he accused them of self-indulgence. These are the ones who will face God's wrath because they've built up their wealth by taking advantage of the poor, totally self-indulged, loving money, condemns them of fraud for withholding wages from the poor, and he condemns them not for being rich, but for having hearts for themselves and for the accumulation of wealth over anything else. So does James hate the rich? No, but he does detest those who love their wealth more than Christ, don't care how they get it. And he says, a true believer will not judge another person by their economic status, having it or not having it, but by their status in Christ. Are you wealthy and serve Christ? Is he your Lord? Then we're brothers. Are you poor and serve Christ? Then we're brothers. That's what James is saying. All right. I have to finish up here. I wish I had time to address the topic of prayer. The passage in James 5 where James talks about anointing the sick with oil and with a prayer of faith. Like I mentioned, a lot of people come away saying, maybe we're supposed to, if we have just enough faith, we can always expect that God will heal the sick. Is that what he's really saying? Sorry, I don't have time to address that today. But I've heard a rumor. I'm pretty sure that Pastor J.D. has actually chosen to preach a sermon series on the book of James. So stay tuned for that. I'm sure that we'll get to all of these questions in due time. Closing, I want to reiterate what James would tell us if he were standing right here today, which is that a faith without fruit cannot save because it's not validated or verified by the works that always accompany a true saving faith. Say it's the the fruit, not the root. Um, Ephesians 2.10. Let me just leave with this. I've got it here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And with that, we'll close our overview of the book of James. invite you to come back next week as we look at 1 Peter. And we'll invite you to stay seated, J.D. And and Michael, I think, have uh, uh, an important announcement for us. Thank you.